one of the things I'm intrigued by is the degree to which the big shift is producing a return to the past. And I think one of the interesting trends that uh, I anticipate in the gig economy is moving to what I call the guild economy. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit aperturehub.co. Often to know where we're going, we need to know where we've been, which is why today we are speaking with John Hagel, who has been working with the most successful companies in Silicon Valley for 40 years, and he founded two startups of his own. John is a management consultant, author of several books, including The Power of Pull, and he earned his MBA from Harvard University. Today, John co-chairs Deloitte's Center for the Edge, which is a Silicon Valley-based research center. In this episode, John joins your host, Ben Robinson, for a very comprehensive discussion on the zoom-in, zoom-out approach to strategy, why the advertised-based business model is unsustainable and the alternative, how customers' reluctance to accept mass-market products will drive the fragmentation of product and service-based businesses, why learning in the form of sharing existing knowledge is not where the greatest value is, why John is optimistic about the gig economy, and more. Enjoy the show. So, John, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I think everybody, well, I guess most listeners will know who Deloitte are, but like me, probably there are quite a few people that aren't quite so familiar with the Center for the Edge. So what is what is the Deloitte Center for the Edge? Broadly, it's uh, a research center that's chartered with identifying emerging business opportunities that should be on the CEO's agenda but are not and do the research to persuade them to put it on the agenda. So we try to stay a step ahead of everybody else. Your work is guided, I think, in large part through this idea of the big shift. How, how do you define that big shift? We don't have a single definition. We just view it as the, the way in which the war, uh, global economy is transforming as a result of long-term trends that have been playing out for actually several decades. You mean so technological trends like cloud, mobile, those kinds of things? Certainly digital technology is a key um, a driver of the, the changes. I'd say the whole movement towards freer movement of people and goods and information across boundaries on a global scale is another factor. The increasing power of customers is another factor. So there are many factor forces that are coming together to shape the big shift. And this big shift, this you, you would argue this is as big a shift as the movement move from from an agrarian to an industrial economy. It's not that kind of magnitude of shift. It is. I mean I, I think that often we hear the phrase or some framing of, you know, we're in industry 4.0 or Yes. It's the world economic terminology, isn't it? I think. Yeah. And and our perspective is the no, we're beyond the industrial era. Uh, and the way we frame it is around this notion of a contextual era where it's all about context, reading context, responding to context quickly and effectively. And that's a very different way of organizing and, and acting on business issues. That's good. right? So, so we, I think we should now start to sort of delve into, into that. So 
into what that really means, you know, so the big shift and the contextual era. So maybe, maybe let's start by talking about the role of strategy within an organization, because I guess in response to faster change, a company needs to introduce more agile decision-making and you've written a lot about this. So, so I was wondering if we could maybe start with your concept of zooming in and zooming out and how that helps to frame strategic planning horizons. Yes, it's uh, a very different approach to strategy, zoom out, zoom in. It uh, has been inspired by, I've been in Silicon Valley now for 40 years and I've had the opportunity to work with some of the most successful tech companies in the Valley and they have a very different approach to strategy and it inspired the zoom out, zoom in. They don't use that term, but it's the one that I've used to basically describe a very different approach to strategy, which focuses on two time horizons in parallel. On one time horizon, it's 10 to 20 years, and that's the zoom out horizon. And on that horizon, the questions are, what will our relevant market or industry look like 10 to 20 years from now? And then what are the implications for the kind of company or business we need to be to be successful in that market or industry 10 to 20 years from now? So that's zoom out, zoom in, very different time horizon. It's six to 12 months. And on that horizon, the questions are, what are the two or three initiatives, no more, two or three, that we could pursue in the next six to 12 months that would have the greatest impact in accelerating our movement towards that longer term opportunity we've identified? And do we have a critical mass of resource against those two or three initiatives in the next six to 12 months? And uh, how would we measure success? What are the metrics we would use to assess our progress towards that longer term destination? So very different, two very different time horizons, 10 to 20 years, six to 12 months. When you think about the way most companies talk about strategy, it's the five-year plan, right? It's year one, year two, year three, year four, yeah. year five. That's our strategy. These companies spend almost no time on one to five years. It's all about 10 to 20 years or six to 12 months. And their belief is if they get those right, everything else will take care of itself. And so it's a very different way of uh, thinking about strategy. And we believe in, a, in rapidly changing times. It's um, necessary, essentially, as challenging as it is to look ahead. You need to do that. I, one of our concerns, everybody today talks about agility and flexibility, and certainly that's valuable in, in some contexts. But if all you're doing is sensing and responding to whatever's happening at the moment, being flexible and agile, you're going to spread yourself way too thin across way too many things because there's so much going on. If you're just responding and reacting to anything and everything, good luck. Zoom out, zoom in helps you to focus, to get a sense of what really matters, where are we headed, what's the destination that we're trying to achieve, then how can we accelerate our movement there? It's a very powerful way to focus effort rather than just respond to whatever's happening at the moment. And presumably when you're working in these on these different time horizons, you're using different strategic tools to try to to figure out what the world looks like 20 years and also, and I guess, separate tools to optimize what you do in the next six to 12 months. Is it fair to say that when you're looking sort of 10 or 20 years out, you're using scenario planning, you know, kind of pulling yourself out of your comfort zone and trying to sort of, you know, think without constraints about what the future might be? Absolutely. Scenario planning is a critical tool and, and very useful in terms of 
looking ahead and imagining, you know, all the possibilities, alternative futures. I think the the difference here is that in many in most scenario planning efforts, you imagine very different futures. You may ultimately disagree on what which future has the greatest probability, and then you leave. You the meeting's over. In this approach, the meeting's not over until we have committed to a, the the future that we believe is most likely and committed to short term initiatives based on that future. So we're, this has implications for us and it very much changes the whole discussion because a, a lot of scenario planning efforts are viewed as theoretical conceptual exercises, but they don't really make a difference to the, to the business today. Zoom out, zoom in, it has a profound difference on what you do in the short term. How concrete an idea of the future do you have to come up with? Because you know, one of the things you talk about a lot in your writing is this idea of narratives versus stories. And I think the, the difference you draw is that a narrative is, is open-ended, right? So can a future state be a little bit nebulous and just kind of help frame where you're headed, the kind of North Star, without having to be too concrete? Yeah, it's a, it's a balancing act, ultimately. It has to be sufficiently tangible that it can help you make choices in the short term, but broad enough so that there's room to, you know, explore and, and discover as you go. I, I, one example I use, most of the companies that pursue this approach don't uh, talk about it publicly. There was one company that where it's been written about, so I can share, and it was actually Microsoft in the early days uh, when it was just a startup back in the 1970s. Bill Gates pursued a zoom out, zoom in approach. And the, the zoom out he had for his, his company could be summarized in two sentences. One is computing is moving from centralized mainframes to the desktop. Second, if you want to be a leader in the computer industry, you need to be a leader on the desktop. So it wasn't a detailed blueprint of what the computer industry would look like 10 to 20 years from now, but it was enough specificity so that you could make real hard choices in the short term and accelerate your movement towards the desktop. You just said something there I want to touch on, which is you said you've got to be able to make you know hard choices in the short term. Yeah. In this kind of strategy work that I've done, I think that's one of the hardest things to get people to do, right? So let's assume that you, you, know, you, you can galvanize an organization about, around a long-term vision. Yeah. Then getting them to make difficult choices, to actually sort of divest of some activities is super difficult, right? How, how, what's, this, what's the right way to approach making those short-term choices? It helps if it's short-term and it's not massive uh, resource requirements. So, you know, you can, a lot of the resistance is if you're talking about five-year programs and, you know, billions of dollars, that's that's going to encounter a lot of resistance. We, we have kind of a filter that we use on the Zoom In side, which is that one of the Zoom In initiatives, six to 12-month initiatives, should be focused on what we call scaling the edge. It's finding an edge to the existing business that has the potential to scale to the point where it will become that business that we anticipate 10 to 20 years from now. So it's finding an edge, starting to scale the edge in the next six to 12 months. Second initiative, uh, zoom in initiative is what's the one thing we could do that would have the greatest impact in strengthening the performance of the existing core of our business? 
because ultimately that's where the money is today and we want to prolong it as much as possible. And then the third one, which is the most challenging in my experience, third zoom-in initiative, is what one major set of activities could we shut down in the next six to 12 months so that we can free up resources for scaling the edge and for strengthening the core? And that's, you know, looking for something that is marginally profitable, has no real potential for growth. Why are we doing this? Let's shut it down so that we can, in fact, devote more attention and and resource to the things that matter. And how successful are you at getting companies to do that third aspect? As I said, it, it is certainly challenging. I think that in my experience, having a sense of what what are the what's that edge that we could scale and the really big opportunity we could be moving towards and then also that there's an imperative to strengthen the core we can't just you know continue on as we are i think that helps to build a sense of need for shutting down i mean if you just say let's shut down things that aren't very good or very profitable that's going to encounter a lot of resistance but it's the notion that there's actually something much bigger and better that needs and deserves the resources that we're currently devoting to something that's not producing great results. One of the articles that you wrote that we have cited the most, in fact, I'm pleased we don't have to pay royalties to you because we've cited it so many times, <laughs> is the one around the, immu- the immune system, right? I think you, you, know, you consistently say never, ever underestimate the immune system, right? How does, how does one scale the edge under the radar of the immune system? It's a great question, and it's certainly a major focus of our work is is the notion of how do you avoid mobilizing, exciting the the immune system. And general counsel to um, to companies uh, around the drive to change. First of all, it's scale the edge versus trying to transform the core, because you know even if you see the need to do everything fundamentally differently, if you go in from the top down into the core and you know define this massive change program that's going to take many years and a lot of money that guarantees that the immune system is going to come out full force against you they they want to hold on to what they have they don't want to take risk and by the way i think the immune system the people in the immune system are very well-intentioned people they're not evil by any means they're wanting what's best for the company their view is what's best is to do what we can continue doing what we've always done so this notion of scaling the edge is a way to not draw out the immune system if you start with a small part of the business that today is relatively modest doesn't get a lot of attention and you focus on short-term action and impact that helps to build more credibility for what you're trying to achieve and over time in our experience it undermines the immune system because you know the immune system a lot of it is about being risk averse but if you can show real impact in a short period of time it starts to overcome that that risk averseness and people start to ask well wow that's interesting you know how could i be part of that um, so it's a a way to avoid direct confrontation with the immune system. You have an expression. In fact, it's the, it's the um, subtitle of your book, The Power of the Poor, where you say it's all about small moves smartly made. But I, sp- I suppose that begs the question, if you're making small moves, are we not in danger of kind of, you know, I guess we could incrementalize ourselves to, to death, right? 
what's it going to be? And I think in that context, it's a way to inspire people with a very, uh, uh, now if I focus on opportunity-based narratives, that helps to inspire people and excite them and helps them to overcome their fear and act in spite of their fear. One of the reasons we, we're so uh, such strong proponents of the zoom out, zoom in approach, because if you think about it, at one level, it's not framed this way in the strategy uh, domain, but you can think about the zoom out as framing that opportunity out in the future. What's that really big opportunity that we could we could focus on and, and become over time? And then it focuses people on short-term action and impact, which helps, number one, to inspire people. There's a really big opportunity out there, but also overcome the skepticism that many are going to have who are afraid to say, well, wait a minute, that's just fantasy. That's never going to happen. No, we're actually having impact today. We're making progress towards that opportunity. Come join us. So I think it, it can be a powerful way to, to address and overcome the fear. The, the companies you're working with at the moment, how, how good a job are they doing or how tough is it to tr- translate this pandemic into an opportunity and not into, some, in, into something to be fearful of? It's, it's hard to generalize, but I will. I, you know, at least in my experience and with the companies that I'm dealing with, it's still very much driven by fear and uh, short-term focus, understandable at one level. I mean, many companies are, are struggling to make payroll for the month and continue to, to exist. And so that, that definitely pulls people back to a very short-term kind of time horizon and just focusing on survival versus, you know, how could we learn from this? What are the things we could change that would help us to become even more effective and uh, uh, successful in the future. So I think it, the fear is definitely dominating, in, in my experience, the, the reaction to, to the pandemic versus viewing this as a catalyst for change. I want to slightly shift gears, if that's okay. So, so far, we've talked about evolving strategy in response to the big shift. Now, just focus a bit on how business models need to change in response to the big shift. And I think you've written a lot, and I think you're one of the earliest people to sort of flag this, which is there's, there's in a lot of the platform business models we see today, there's this kind of inherent conflict between the consumer and the producer, because in the middle, you've, you've inserted an advertiser, right? So, you know, I think you're one of the first people that I, certainly that I came across who was starting to question the sustainability of these, you know, quote unquote, free models that, that depend on that advertising revenue because they introduce that conflict of interest. But I suppose we haven't yet seen, I mean, there's, you know, I think for a long time, we've been anticipating that maybe, you know, Facebook was in, was about to, to, to move into sort of negative network effects, but it hasn't really happened. And, you know, do you still subscribe to the view that those, you know, these advertising-based business models are inherently unsustainable? And when do you think we as consumers wake up to this? And when do you think these business models start to, you know, to, to perform worse or not as well as they have done? Yeah, there, there are a lot of challenges with the uh, um, advertising-based business models. I think certainly one of them, and it was the whole focus of uh, the book, uh, The Power of Pull, was advertising intrinsically as a push-based model. It's all about how do you intercept people, get your message, push your message to them, push your, to get attention. And our belief is that that model is increasingly challenged, that uh, 
the the number of options that are uh, trying to push to get our attention are, are significantly increasing. And we as customers are becoming overwhelmed with all the attempts to, to reach us. So I think that, that that's one piece to the puzzle. The other piece is that it, it goes to the notion of trust and um, perception of what interests are you are you serving uh, when I interact with you? Is it my interests or is it somebody else's? And intrinsically in an advertising-based business model, it's the it's the advertiser who's paying the bill. So the uh, the attention and focus is going to be on their needs and what, what do you need to serve them? It's an interesting question. I mean, and I do believe, I do see early signals. Again, I don't, I don't think it's a massive movement yet, but if you look at, um, for example, the adoption of advertising blocking software on the internet, it's skyrocketing. It's a, significantly expanding. More and more people are using that to block the ads that are coming in. I think there's also, you know, again, early signals, but a lot of people who are active users of some of the social media platforms are, are pulling back and now saying, wait a minute, you know, do I really want to share this because it's, uh, can I trust that it's going to be uh, used for my benefit versus somebody else's? So I think that there's there's and, and then the other thing is the growing call. And again, I think it's, it's early days, but enough evidence out there. The, the mobilization of people for regulation of online businesses and uh, around data capture and around advertising and all the rest suggests that people are less and less open to having that model and, and being having their data being used for that purpose. So. It's early days still, but uh, my counsel to companies is find alternative approaches to advertising-based business models if you really want to build trust and deeper relationships with your customers. What you paint as the sort of alternative or or a better model is a model where you have alignment, right? So I'm helping you to make better decisions to you know to find products and services that are better suited to your needs and so it's a model where there's a there's a very clear you know i very clearly give you the consent to use my data in exchange for you doing something that will benefit me so there's there's total alignment there's trust and also it's you know an expression that you use right in 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 our attention starved age it's about helping us to get a higher return on the attention that we that we afford to your to your platform so i can definitely see how that's the, you know the the next model to triumph, and I listen to everything you say about about regulation and people sw- you know turning on ad blockers, but we haven't yet seen, as far as I'm aware, anybody who's really profiting from this new idea of a trusted advisor and intermediary. Have you seen examples in the marketplace that are really starting to work? Uh, not in any massive way. I mean, I think there are again early signals. Um, I'm frankly frustrated. I've been talking about these opportunities for quite a while, and it's still um, it, the, the challenge is it requires a, a massive cultural shift for a company to really um, address this opportunity. And the focus is, again, much more on uh, the scalable efficiency and just doing things faster and cheaper and more incrementally. So, you know, I, I think some of the early indicators, uh, again, not not perfect, but there are companies um, in Asia that are being 
much more effective at mobilizing large uh, networks of third parties to provide value to their customers, you know, positioning themselves essentially as a trusted advisor to it's more in the business to business space in those in those situations. Things like the motorcycle industry, the uh, clothing industry. So there are some examples at that level. I think one that's intriguing to me, uh, although again, relatively early stage, not early stage in terms of time, but in terms of real development is what Johnson & Johnson has done with Baby Center, um, a website that they invite uh, parents with small children, babies who are experiencing a very challenging life event and offering them a a space to connect with each other and and get help from each other, learn from each other about how to be more effective as a parent uh, with small children. And so I think it's um, this notion of, again, being proactive in connecting the customers with people who can help them. And uh, that's at least in the U.S., that's become a go-to place. Millions of people, parents with small babies, are are going there because the word is spread. And it's the power of pull in that case because they're not doing advertising for, for this website. They're just, um, you know, word is spreading. And parent, a parent with a baby has a friend who just had a baby and saying, you need to go to this website. It's really helpful. And so it's... Uh, you know, word of mouth and and this draw because it's so helpful to the person. Yeah, I think you've, with that Johnson & Johnson example, I think you've more or less answered the question I was going to ask you, which is how do you, you know, it's a a kind of a paradox, which is, um, and I know you like paradoxes, right, which is this this idea that um, you can imagine I have your trust and in exchange for, you know, in exchange for you sharing your data, I'm giving you useful information back. But without engagement, People won't return enough to the to the site and won't share enough data to make that site site truly useful. But I think you've kind of answered it, which is it has to be both, right? You have to achieve trust and engagement at the same time. Otherwise, you won't have a sort of big enough vector um, and enough data to be able to be really useful to people's lives. And I, lives. And I guess also the social aspect also helps with as you what your term with scalable learning, right? Which is it's only through many to many interactions that you can learn fast enough to 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 really materially improve the learning curve, right? Or materially move up the learning curve. Yeah, it's, it's definitely complicated. I, I don't suggest this is easy at all, but I, you know, another example that I use, and again, this is from quite a while ago, in the mid to late 1990s, a company here in Silicon Valley, Cisco, made, making networking equipment, created an online we- website called Cisco Connection Online. And what they were doing was they were, inviting prospects, people who are interested in their equipment, to go to this website. And what they would do on the website is they would start by asking two or three questions. Just tell me something about yourself. And then based on those questions, they would immediately provide tangible advice and value back to that that prospect to say, okay, based on that, here are the kinds of things you should be thinking about and why why those are could be valuable to you. But then they would ask another set of questions. And it was this notion of rapid staging to build trust that you're, at, you're, start, you're, not, you're not presenting them with a f- five-page questionnaire or survey. It's two or three questions. You're providing really tangible value back to them. And then based on that, asking for more information and, and 
the experience was customers were more and more willing to share more detailed information about themselves because they were getting real value back in return. And another piece to the, the, the Cisco platform, which was, I think, an important part, is based on the answers to the questions, Cisco would start to connect you with experts uh, based on your needs. So it, it, they might come back and say, well, you know, based on your answers, you, you haven't really clearly defined your need yet. You, you could benefit from having a consultant work with you to really frame the needs that you have. Here's a consultant that you might consider. And they make an introduction and connect the customer with a third party. Uh, Cisco had 40,000 specialists or expertise uh, experts within their network that they could connect customers with. So again, word spread among, among people who were interested in networking equipment that if you go to that Cisco site, it's really helpful. <laughs> it can help you figure out what you really need. And then once you figure out what you need, uh, another key piece to this uh, platform was once you bought the networking equipment, you had needs like staging the the site, the location for the networking equipment. So Cisco would connect you with a specialist who could prepare the facility for the equipment, uh, training uh, people, people who could come in and help train your employees to get more value. So it was after the purchase, it was continuing that focus on how to help the customer get more and more value from the products that they had purchased. I wanted to ask you about fragmentation versus bundling. You envisage a future state where we see massive fragmentation, right? Because because if, if we move to a state where platforms are really connecting us with the very or the optimal service for each individual, then we then we have a much more sort of heterogeneous set of suppliers, right? We, have a, you know, we actually move to a long tail type concept where where you could optimize just for a, for a very small uh, demographic of people in each case. Do you really think that that is going to be the end state or do you think just the power of bundling is such that you know you'll always be able to bundle a, a, a you know an, an inferior product with a great product if you you know if you can do so for, if you can bundle the pricing yeah again this goes back to our our view of the big shift and the 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 evidence is that customers are becoming more and more demanding and less and less willing to accept something that's standardized mass market product or a bundle of things, some of which are good and others that are not that good. We want the best in whatever product or service category we um, we, we uh, have a need for. And we want something that's the best in the sense of addressing our individual needs, not just the mass market or even a large segment, but our specific needs. What would be the best product or service? And in that context, we believe that that is a force that's going to drive fragmentation of product and service businesses. We're starting to see it. I mean, the early stage uh, uh, trend for this was actually in the digital space, um, where you, you, things like music, uh, videos, software, seeing exploding fragmentation, more and more options that are available for very specific customer interests or needs. And it's starting to spread into the into the physical product space. My favorite example, because I'm a chocoholic, is Kraft chocolate. Ten years ago, twenty years ago, there were three or four global brands of chocolate. That was what you had, and that's all you could get. <laughs> Increasingly, we're saying no. 
<laughs> that's not enough. We want a chocolate that's tailored to our very specific tastes and, and interests. And there are more and more craft companies, small, profitable companies. I mean, again, part of our view of around fragmentation is while these companies will be small, they'll be quite profitable. It's just that they're not going to grow into massive, you know, multinational companies in the in the way that the traditional mass market companies did. But also, I, I will say, too, that while we see fragmentation in the product and service businesses, we also see concentration in a set of other businesses, starting with things like um, running data centers, oper- data center operations, uh, logistics uh, businesses, thing businesses where there are significant economies of scale and network effects that can really drive um, scale over time. And in fact, part of the reason we see fragmentation in the product businesses is because you have those uh, resources, concentrated resources you can tap into. I don't need a data center if I'm a small product company. I can just rent space on a data center. I don't need to have my own trucking and logistics operations. I can contract that out. So I can access the scale assets and resources that I need for my business without doing it myself. That allows me to stay small and profitable. And then on the other side, I think the big opportunity, which we briefly touched on, but I think is uh, more speculative, but ultimately more uh, more interesting is this notion of a trusted advisor. As you're confronted with more and more choices as a customer, as you see the fragmentation of product and services and the rapid evolution of products and services, having somebody you trust who can really help you connect to the products and services that are most relevant to you are going to really, is going to really be hugely valuable. And our view is the trusted advisor has what we call economies of scope in that the more I know about you as a customer, the more helpful I can be to you as a trusted advisor versus if I just see a small slice of who you are. And the more other customers I'm serving, the more helpful I can be to each individual customer because now I I can say, well, customers like you have gotten huge value from this product or service. You've never even asked for it. By the way, a key role for the trusted advisor, in our view, is not just waiting for a customer to ask for something. It's being actively challenging to the customer to say, no, you asked for this. You you really should be looking for this. And here's why. Or, you know, you haven't asked for it, anything, but here, here's something that could be really valuable. So it's challenging to get more value for the customer. I uh, 100%, 100% agree with that. The way you've sort of depicted the um the future economic state where you have a, you know a small number of of players that have very large supply side economies of scale and and you have a few number of players who have very large sort of demand side economies of scale and in the middle you have this proliferation of producers, right? So you can borrow the scale from from those people that have supply side economies of scale so that you can produce at much lower unit costs and then you distribute through those people who, who command attention. And I think I would totally agree with that as the sort of end state. I think what what we haven't seen yet is a shift in in who aggregates demand. Because I think what we're saying, and I totally agree with you, it just hasn't happened yet, which is the precondition to, to aggregate my demand is you have to have my trust. And I, I think at the moment, the precondition is you've got to have engagement. And then, you know, once, once you... We'll pay you forty percent of our of our revenues so we can get access to your customer. I think that's the bit that's that will change, but just I'm not sure how quickly. Yeah, it's uh, early stage, but again, if you look at the fundamental forces reshaping the economy, our view is that 
that that's going to unfold over time because there's there's a growing unmet need for that kind of service and we'll see how how it plays out i want to talk to you next about lifetime learning right because so clearly in 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 this in in the big shift which is in many ways an acceleration of of economic activity and acceleration of change the knowledge that we accumulate will depreciate faster you know it's like necessarily right so and 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 I think, as you said, right, it's it's, it's sort of almost canute like to just try to you know to, to read more books and you know go to go to more courses. And so, what you're saying is we have to put in place something that will achieve scalable learning. How do how do we do that? I think most people, when they hear learning, especially executives, <clears throat> will say, "Well, yeah, we have training programs. We do learning." Actually, in a world that's rapidly changing. Learning in the form of sharing existing knowledge, while it's still helpful, is not where the greatest value is. It's learning in the form of creating new knowledge and doing that through action in the workplace as you're confronting new situations that have never been confronted before and connecting with others so that you can learn faster. You know, when you confront those situations, who can I connect with who can help me figure this out and come up with an approach that really would create value in this context. It's got huge implications for for how we do business. I mean, one of the key challenges that I frame is, again, our view is most institutions today are run by a scalable efficiency model uh, versus a scalable learning model. In the scalable efficiency model, the one message that every employee hears, if not daily, it's certainly very frequently, failure is not an option. You will deliver as predicted, as, as expected, reliably and efficiently. Well, okay, got that message. What's required for learning, especially learning in the form of creating new knowledge? Failure. <laughs> if you're not failing, you're not learning fast enough. Yep. You, got, you got to learn from the failures and figure out what the right approaches are. But again, there's that fundamental conflict between those two messages. And that's why Many companies try to just isolate the, the learning in innovation labs or incubation centers somewhere off on the side uh, and focus everybody else just on, on staying true to the manual. So I think that it is a massive cultural shift. John, what about as, as an individual? Because I suppose you know, we have knowledge stocks that are also depreciating very fast. How do we learn faster? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. We've uh, increasingly are hearing in, in the world of the need for lifelong learning because the world's changing so much. But nobody talks about why. What's the motivation? I mean, why would somebody engage in this? It requires a huge amount of effort and takes you out of your comfort zone. The unstated assumption, I think, of, mo- of most people when they talk about it is that it, you do it out of fear. If you don't pursue lifelong learning, you're going to lose your job. You're going to be out of work and so get to it. My belief is while fear can be a motivator to learn at some level, it's not a very powerful motivator. The most powerful motivator is passion. And we have a very specific form of passion that we focused on in our research. We call it the passion of the explorer. But our belief is that people who cultivate this passion find out what what they're really passionate about and then find a way to pursue it as a profession, as a way to make a living, those are the people who are going to learn the fastest because they're excited by 
driven by the need and opportunity to learn. They're not doing it out of fear. They're doing it because they're excited about it and they're constantly seeking it. So our, our sense is that the people who are just doing work because they want to get a secure income or paycheck, those are the ones who are going to struggle with lifelong learning. The ones that are going to be most successful are those who are working out of passion. So earlier on, we talked about the whole move to craft, right? And you, you know, you talked about chocolate and I, if you'd asked me to give an example, I would have talked about craft beer, right? Um, <laughs> but the, but I suppose in a way that's, that's, that's a sort of manifestation of people actually, you know, moving to do things that they're passionate about, you know, so this whole return to craft and that, and, and therefore, you know, becoming artisans and doing something they're passionate about allows them to, con- con- you know, creates the sort of motivation for them to continue, continue to learn. Absolutely. I think it's a key driver of fragmentation in the economy overall is this quest for passion. And and many people are passionate about very creative kinds of activities and uh, developing uh, products that are tailored to very specific needs. But I think you can be passionate about virtually any activity. It just depends on looking inside what, what really excites you and then continuing to search for that until you find it and then finding a way to make a living from it. And you'll be quite successful in a world that requires lifelong learning. How does scaling the edge tally with, or, or how is it compatible with sort of, you know, the, the organization at large learning faster? Because it's almost something that you said earlier on implied that you think some of these things like innovation centers and so on are a bit, you know, are, are a bit of a sideshow, right? Or a bit of a, you know, are never going to achieve the sort of, you know, the, the large scale systematic changes that are necessary for, for an organization to really learn at much greater scale. Again, it's a challenge. Our, our sense is it's unlikely that you're going to get the entire core of your business to fully embrace all aspects of scalable learning because that does require massive transformation. On the other side, again, I go back to this notion of uh, strengthening the core. We have a framework that we call metrics that matter that can help you to target elements in the core where you could start to drive some of these scalable learning principles and approaches. And the example I give is um, for metrics that matter is start with the financial metrics of the company as a whole. And as just as an example, it could be that revenue growth is the big challenge. Okay, let's drill down one more level to operating metrics. What could, what's holding us back from revenue growth? And in this illustration, it could be, well, we've got a high rate of customer churn. Customers are leaving at a rapid rate, so we can't grow revenue. Okay, drill down one more level to say, where in the front line is there a metric that could really make a difference in customer churn? And in this illustration, again, it could be call center operations. It could be, well, customers are calling us and you know they're getting frustrated. They're not getting answers to their question. Okay. Now we have a very specific part of the company in the core where there's a big need and it could influence the performance of the whole company. Let's focus again with small moves targeted to this particular area to say, how could we help the customer call center operators learn at a more rapid rate in terms of addressing unmet customer needs? The the intent is to show real impact quickly and to build more credibility and support for doing this in other parts of the organization versus just customer call centers. On the gig economy, 
again, you're starting to sort of craft a different narrative from the one we tend to 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 read about every day, right? Which is so most you know most of the stuff you read about the gig economy is you know it's a sort of race at the bottom, right? We've you know we by not allowing people to act sort of collectively. And by, by putting them on sort of different types of contracts, we just get people to work harder for less money, right? That's, that's sort of one narrative. And, and, and I think you're sort of starting to reframe the narrative by saying that might be true today, but we're going to see a different type of, of gig economy job in time. And then the second thing is we'll start to see gig economy workers form collectives, right? Or not, you know, not collectives in the sense of sort of trade unions or anything, but they'll start to form groups where they, where they can collaborate together in order to sort of learn faster and, and achieve, um, you know, I suppose better quality at scale. And so can we break that down? Can we start with why you think the gig economy will, you know, move upstream in terms of, of requiring different types of skills and, you know, and I suppose creating jobs that are better paid? Yeah, I think uh, again it has to do with this broader focus on the big shift and in the in the uh, scalable efficiency world which is what the world we're largely in still today. The gig economy emerged largely as a result of a drive towards more efficiency, right? If we can take fixed labor cost and transform it into a variable labor cost and potentially access the labor in lower wage regions or countries, uh, we'll become more efficient. And that's the gig economy. Our view is that as we move to the scalable learning model, there's still a value in connecting with people outside the organization, but it's with the objective of learning together so that we can actually rapidly improve our performance and whatever the, the work area is. And in that context, the notion is that the independent contractors are increasingly going to want to connect with each other because they'll learn faster as a small group than they they will just sitting in the isolation of their home or wherever they are. But connecting with and and now offering their services as a small group, you know, five people maybe, but they will learn faster. They'll help their customers to learn faster in terms of whatever their needs are. And over time, we see the emergence. Uh, one of the things I'm intrigued by is the degree to which the big shift is producing a return to the past. And I think one of the interesting trends that uh, I anticipate in the gig economy is moving to what I call the guild economy, where, as you said, people with, with similar areas of interest are going to come together in guilds. And again, it's not with the desire to just hold on to what they have. It's to connect so that they can learn faster together and help each other learn faster. And that's a very different kind of mindset and model. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, one of the reasons why, I, I think you're right, by the way, and I think another reason why that might happen is because at the moment, the a lot of this sort of gig economy is mediated based on um, on ratings, right? So, you know, I, I, w I won't take an Uber driver, you know, theoretically, if they've got a 4.2 rating versus a 4.8 rating or whatever, or I won't use a tradesperson if they've got a, lo you know, a low rating. But when we come to actually, you know, if we think the gig economy is going to step up and do more and more complex work, then it's going to be harder and harder to mediate that work just based on ratings because we'll need people to deliver, you know, there'll be much more complex deliverables, which will consist of, you know, many people contributing to that deliverable. And at that, that point, I think is when it makes sense at that point to create guilds or, or, or some sort of, you know, collective bodies, right? Because 
you know, simply having a four star rating is not going to be enough if I want you to build my home and, you know, plumb it. And, you know, you can, you know, I, I, whatever the example might be, I just think the deliveries become or the deliverables become more complex. It sort of lends itself to, to, to some sort of intermediation. What, what do you think will happen to globalization in light of this pandemic? Because, you know, I think one of the things that we realized was that our supply chains were much more fragile than, than we thought, right? So do you think that will, to some extent, put the brakes on physical trade? Do you think we'll end up reshoring a lot of manufacturing? The challenge, I mean, clearly at one level, there's this desire to have things closer to, to me so that I can be, rely on them more. But at, at another level, I mean, if you're just taking the supply chain mentality, and again, longer conversation, but uh, broadly, the scalable efficiency model says you want a supply chain with as few participants as possible and tightly integrate and tightly specify every activity that's done in that supply chain. That makes for a very brittle and fragile supply chain in times of extreme events like the pandemic. And just bringing all those activities onshore closer to where you are is not going to solve the problem. It's still going to be very brittle and fragile. Our belief is the real need is to expand our horizons from supply chains to what we call supply networks, where you are working to orchestrate a very large number of participants and pulling them in as needed as specific situations arise versus, no, I've just got this one supplier who depends on this other supplier who depends on that supplier. No, it's increasing the, the range of participants so you have more flexibility. And by the way, so that you can learn faster. In a network, if, you've, if you design the network and the relationships in the network, so it's not just transactions, buy low, sell high, but we're all committed to learning faster and accelerating our performance improvement. That's powerful as a motivation to participate in the supply network. It's almost self-evident, but just as as you know, more and more um, activities move online, they become you know intrinsically more networked. And so, would you argue that you know what we've been seeing over the last you know few decades is is supply becoming more networked, and therefore you know what we might be seeing now and you know is an immediate reaction where we're trying to again put up barriers, but effectively the sort of you know the secular trend towards you know more networks, more ecosystems will trump the you know the immediate backlash to kind of put up you know to to erect borders and and become more nationalistic in the big shift world the the winners are going to be those who learn faster the ones who are going to learn faster are those who are more networked and connected with a broader range of more diverse expertise and resources and so if you're just narrowing your connections we believe you're going to be increasingly disadvantaged relative to those who continue to expand their connections and harness the power of networking on a global scale. So in the short term, yes, because of fear, we may see borders come up and, and barriers to the movement come up. But over time, our view is the countries and the areas that maintain openness and connection are going to be the ones that thrive. And over time, those who are putting up these barriers are going to realize that they're being disadvantaged and start to reconnect again. I know that every one of your blogs finishes with 
to bottom line, right? So I wanted if, if I could end this podcast with the bottom line, which is a summary of what the big shift means if we, if we can summarize it. And then, and then, and then the last thing is kind of reasons to be optimistic, how we overcome the fear and inject the optimism to make it happen. Well, I'll end with a paradox. Um, <laughs> okay. It's what I call the paradox of the big shift. If you think about the big shift, at one level, it is creating exponentially expanding opportunity. We can produce much more value with far less resource, far more quickly than would have been imaginable a couple of decades ago. Huge opportunity. At the same time, the paradox is the big shift is also creating mounting performance pressure on all of us as individuals and as institutions we're experiencing more and more pressure. It takes many forms, intensifying competition, accelerating pace of change, extreme events that come in out of nowhere and disrupt our best laid plans, uh, witness the pandemic. So you've got the interesting thing that the big shift is, is at one level creating exponentially expanding opportunity, at the other side mounting performance pressure. And the the challenge and and imperative, I believe, is how do we move from that mounting performance pressure to exponentially expanding opportunity? And the overlay here is that mounting performance pressure induces fear. It creates an, an emotion of fear. And I think it's it's notable around the world, the, the extent to which fear is becoming the dominant emotion. But in that context, I think the, the way to move forward and move from that pressure to opportunity is around framing the, what I was describing as opportunity-based narratives that can really focus people and inspire people on the really big opportunity and help people to come together. I think, again, one of the key roles of narratives, the way I define them, is to bring people together, saying we all need to address this opportunity. It's, you know, can't just do this individually. And that's, to me, what gives me the optimism is that framing that a kind of opportunity-based narrative can help overcome the fear and help mobilize us to address that exponential opportunity. But it requires articulating that opportunity-based narrative. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. A lot, we covered a lot of ground. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about our Aperture community, visit aperturehub.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.